I'm not sure I needed it anyway. I was just going to yell. So that could have worked as well. Look, this morning, I'd like you to consider a single topic, a single idea that there's a lot to unpack. And I'm going to try and stay focused, and I'm going to try and stay calm when I say it. Because this is a really powerful message that there's a lot of elegance in its simplicity. And so what I would ask you to do is to turn to Proverbs uh, chapter 30, 5 through 9, whether it's on your phone, in a book, however you do that, and keep that earmarked. While I'll put Scripture up here, we're going to go back to portions of this singular proverb so that we can get a, a better understanding of what uh, God is attempting to communicate uh, in those short few verses. For those of you who have read Proverbs, you know, there are earthly Proverbs, there are biblical Proverbs. The whole idea of biblical Proverbs is to impart God's perspective on godly wisdom. The entire Proverbs panoply is built on this idea of comparing God's wisdom to that of man's. And there are many verses that we like to go back to in 1 Corinthians. Uh, this idea that the foolishness of God is really better than even the best that man has to offer. We also go back to Proverbs 21, that it's no mystery that we believe what we do is right in our own eyes. How many of you walk around believing what you're doing is not right? right? You believe what everyone else is doing is not right. Uh, that seems to be the universal truth. But you believe what you're doing is right, yet we're told in that proverb that God weighs the heart. And it's another way to say that there is truth and while we like to talk about the challenges people have today, however we define young people, we're always said young people today, whatever that means, right? Uh, but it's always been under attack. The Bible has the truth. From its initial inception, from Jesus coming to the earth, He was truth manifest, and He was under attack. And the attacks are always the same. This is the idea of how in the world can you believe the book of God? It's old. It's outdated. It doesn't fit the way things are today. What, why should I follow that? The people who think that way must be simple, must be foolish, might be stupid. You ever heard that? If you haven't, tell me where you're living. We can talk afterwards, okay? Because it's common. It's not just today. It's always been that way. But we have some really interesting insight delivered to us, and it's a true counterculture from Agur. There's not much known about Agur other than his writing style is so vastly different from that of David, it's easy to figure out someone other than David is writing it. And, you know, his, there's not even a clue in the meaning of his name. It literally means hired hand, but in Hebrew, it infers the idea of the collector. I don't know what that means, other than we don't know enough about him, but yet he offers a couple wishes that I'll tell you are quite different compared to today's worldly standards. And here they are. Here's our seminal text in chapter 30, verses 5 through 9. Every word of God is flawless. I guess I could stop right there and we could sing, right? <laughs> it's enough. I don't need to interpret that. How much of God's word is flawless? And what does flawless actually mean? Without flaw, it's really complex, right? It's perfect is what it's being uh, conveyed here. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. Two things I ask of you, O Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. And here they are in verse 8. 
Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Now, I just ask you just to consider this. If I gave you two wishes, would these be in the top 100? I was going to say in the top five. Would they be in the top 100? We would like to think they would be, right? Because we're in church today. And in church, we always answer the way that we're supposed to answer. But in the real world, we would be thinking about this. Well, maybe that'd be number two, right? Whatever number one might be. And we'll talk about what some of these are. But whether it's Aladdin's Lamp or, you know, I Dream of Genie, the old TV show. I mean, we're always thinking about this idea of getting wishes granted. Now, I don't want to, you know, Tim is not here today. And so in honor of Tim telling bad jokes in the opening, I went, I went in search of the bad joke repository where he might be getting some of his information. All the, jokes, all the jokes I found were pretty good, so I have no idea where Tim is getting this. I believe, I believe these are original to Tim. Uh, and I do not think they can be copied, so I'm not even going to try. Uh, but when I was thinking about this idea of wishes, it reminded me of this old joke that I have heard where three people are on a, you know, marooned on a deserted island and, uh, you know, all of a sudden they're, they're all lamenting. You know, I wish I could be home with friends and family and whatever it is, and they're wandering around. And one of them finds a lamp and out pops the genie from this lamp and says, I'll grant you three wishes. And the first person says, well, I want to be home with my wife and my kids. I miss them. And poof, he was gone. And the second person said, you know what, I've got a fiancé at home, I love my job, I, I don't want to be here anymore, and poof, he was gone. And the third guy was there, and he goes, I miss my friends, I wish they were here with me. And poof, they were all back together again <laughs> on a deserted island. Tim, Tim, I hope I've done you proud uh, with that one. There, I did, I did my best. But this whole idea about what we want and what we wish for you know, I looked at probably two or three dozen surveys about, you know, what, what are the top five things people want. And they're all the same. They're just in different order. But they probably wouldn't surprise you. Think about what number one would be on that list is wealth, right, money. And then the rest come in different orders. Some say happiness, although they can't define it on what that actually means, just happiness. Success, love, and health. And you might argue it depends what you're going through, how you would elevate uh, those particular items. But one man, Eger, made his wishes very clear. And while one could argue that love might be in there and maybe happiness might be in there and his unique way of asking for it, he does something different. And if we weren't careful about looking at the text, we would think this is just about honoring a proper relationship. That's what we would come for. I just, I just want a relationship. There's something deeper here. He's really communicating a very simple but important fact. He wants a relationship with God. And he wants anything that's in between that to go. That's what he's really asking for. Whether it be poverty, whether it be wealth, whether it be lies. And there's no indication that Agur's suffering from these. We don't know that he's struggling with these, but he knows what they are. And so I'm going to ask you, what would stand between you and a relationship with God? 
See if those things even make sense. Do you think money has ever prevented somebody from having a relationship with God? I'm going to guess yes. Whether you have too little or too lot, sometimes it's the pursuit of things in your life. And how about lies? We just think about the idea of telling lies. I'm talking about living a lie. It's different. There's a lot of people who run around and, and say, you know what, I've never told lies. Well, good on you. But you could still be living one. The key is that he's looking at this. He doesn't want to be deceived. That's what he's talking about. Thinking that something is good in his life, but it's really not. And we're going to unpack that a little bit today. But these are the stated higher purposes that he's given. He starts in verse 7 by saying, do not refuse me before I die, which is really a Hebrew way of saying, as long as I live, God grant me these things. And so what is he asking for? We kind of looked at some of these already. He's asking for an honest relationship. In verse 8, we talked about keep deception and lies far from me. So this idea of deception is this misunderstood or falsehood. It's mean being tricked. Look at a few things that I think are important. Two verses. Many would say, I have nothing to do with deception. If I'm deceived, I'm deceived. How in the world can I control that? Yet the Bible has some, and we could spend a lot of time this morning on the number of verses that talks about your responsibility in understanding the truth. And in a world where we like everything spoon-fed to us, and there's an app for that, here's where you're going to have to put a little work in. Because you put a lot of work in other things in your life that are complex or difficult to understand. No issue with that. This is no different, right? Do not be deceived. This is a command. What an odd command to you if you have nothing to do with being deceived. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And then in Luke 21.8, watch out that you are not deceived. Watch out. What does that even mean? Maybe we could paraphrase. In order to watch out, be advised, be aware, be on your guard. Uh, expect the following. When we're told to be aware, that means we have to be aware of something specific. What are we aware of? Probably comparing stasis or status quo with something else. That's what we're being, being told to be made aware of. Watch out that you are not deceived. We have a level of responsibility for being deceived. And how does that work? You've got to know the truth first. You've got to know what to compare it with. If you want to walk around and try and find out what truth looks like by just talking to others, you're going to be fairly depressed. Because there is a justification for anything you want to believe somewhere. Everywhere. Friends, family, news, media, doesn't matter what it is. If you are destined to believe something, determined on your own will, you can go find it and believe it and feel comfortable. I don't know how many conversations I've even had with people, and I used to justify them, by the way. I wasn't a Christian my whole life. I walked around thinking what I was doing was right in my own eyes, and I told people what I thought God wanted without using the Bible. What I really think God, what I think of God, I think of whatever, and someone would ask me, where do you get that from? I don't know, I just made it up. <laughs> because I had no source of authority. It sounded reasonable to me. 
because that's the God I wanted. At the time, I wanted the God who didn't demand anything of me, who didn't want me to change, and wanted me to live my life like I felt I wanted to live my life. That was the God I wanted. So I sought that God out and found that God. It just wasn't the real God. That's part of what deception is all about. So I'm going to ask you, what do you do? Are you a student of the Word of God? What does that even mean? Do you even read it? How many people even pick up the Bible and read it? Because we're told that's too confusing. Really? It's too confusing? Ah, well, a person can interpret it any way they want. Okay, let's use that as a standard. You ever watch the news? You ever read the news? You ever seen any wild interpretations of things? Did we all stop watching the news? Because it can be interpreted any different way? How about reviews? You ever gone and looked at Google or Yelp reviews and seen that people either like it or hate something? So that's out of the window. Can't use those anymore. Clearly, there are people who are polarizing. Clearly, there's ideas that fall on both ends of the spectrum. But it requires us to do our own research, to read, to pray, to talk to other Christians, to challenge our own beliefs. That's how you learn. And by the way, in the process, there's something that's unique. Because the Word of God isn't just empty words. We're told that it's carried along. The Spirit is alive and active in that message. So we're not just reading words on the Bible. We're communing with God, and God is interceding in our lives when we're reading the text. Something powerful is happening when we have that level of interchange. It's not just reading the Word of God. It's communing in the Word of God. And I think that's something that we can't uh, ever dismiss. This idea that it's outdated. How can the Bible actually cover the problems I'm facing today? There's no way that somebody who's writing something thousands of years ago is applicable to me today. Oh, really? Help me understand the new problems. No, the brand new ones. The ones that no one's ever faced before that you've got. Now, they might be aided a little differently. They might be more technical than they have been in the past. But you want to know something? Sin is sin. It's been out there from the onset uh, with the fall of man. Uh, and it's followed us everywhere. The problems may be in a different time setting. And they might be slightly different in how they, how they manifest in our lives. But you know, they're the same things. The acts of the sinful nature we told are obvious because they've been around for a long time. The Bible is as current today as it was in the day that it was written. And we know that because God, from the very beginning, built us, loves us, and is with us to the very end. We know that it's inspired. We know that it's active. We know that it's current. But how about this idea about not knowing? Sometimes we like to think, well, you know, if I don't know, it won't hurt me. Really? You believe that? How many of you take that into, like, skydiving? <laughs> don't know a thing about skydiving, but you know what? Doesn't matter. What I don't know can't hurt me. You don't have a parachute on. Don't know. Don't care. Jump out. Find out what happens. Right? Don't know a lot about gravity. Go to a tall building. Step off. Right? It doesn't shield you. Your ignorance isn't a protector. That's the whole idea of this idea on deception. But many people would like to walk around and Hosea says, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Can you be destroyed from not knowing? Sounds like the answer is yes. 
Because you have rejected knowledge. That's a pretty active thing. How does one reject knowledge? Does it require a positive public affirmation? Hey, I'd like to talk to you about the Bible. I reject knowledge. Maybe not. Maybe it could be something less like, you know what, I don't have time for that. Or I'm not going to read, I'm not going to pray, I'm not going to do those types of things. I just, I'm too busy. Rejecting knowledge comes from this idea of not pursuing. It can be quite passive. It doesn't have to be as active as some like it to uh, believe it to be. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priest. Because you have ignored the law of your God, I'll also ignore your children. What you don't know will absolutely hurt you. Probably a good idea to know. The second part that Agur talks about is this idea of lies. And I guess one more verse I have up here. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating others. Who's that written to? Us, in here. Not people out there. Okay, us. This is about us, right? Outside of Christ, this is us. And if you put on Christ and reject, and reject Christ, that's you again. This is how we were until Christ came into our lives and changed us. Does it mean we don't struggle with these things? Doesn't mean we don't struggle. We're in the flesh. We're always going to struggle. But we have an advocate now, which is different, which is why this is important. So this idea of lies, right? I want to talk to you about rabbits. I know you're thinking this is a non sequitur. This is actually very tied into this lesson, okay? First of all, if you want to talk to me afterwards about rabbits, I know nothing outside of what I'm about to share with you on rabbits. I'm not a rabbit expert. I've never owned a rabbit. I haven't even been around. I'm not sure I even like rabbits, uh, to be honest with you. But it's a story years ago that I heard. This is about telling the truth. This is about lies. And it came from a preacher by the name of Fred Anderson, and I thought the story was great. So, you know, he's on tough times. Right? Living out in this rural area, working a couple jobs, things are really difficult. He has a neighbor, and the neighbor is raising Rex rabbits, the most expensive rabbit you can buy. They are French-bred, imported into the U.S., and they go, uh, well, they're more expensive now. Fifteen so years ago when he told the story, they were about ten dollars to $20,000 apiece. So I'm told in today's times, they're, they're probably closer to 30000 and they're very fragile. Not many of them live. Very hard to breed this type of rabbit, which is why they cost so much. But their fur and all these other things, all these other rabbit qualities, which must be really endearing for someone to shell out $30,000, uh, apparently commands a, a high market. Uh, so anyway, Fred comes home, average day, sits on his front porch, very tired, barely making ends meet, and he's looking forward to seeing his trusty Labrador that greets him every day. And he sits on the porch, and up comes his Labrador with a dead Rex rabbit in its mouth. Plops it down right in front of Fred in a show of, look at me, I know you're proud. I am the hunter-gatherer, I've killed this rabbit, and I'm showing you this rabbit. And he knows exactly what it is and from where it comes. Uh, and so he had a decision to make. He's a preacher. So, on one hand, he can make up some fantastic tale 
which he didn't know what that would be. Or two, he could just go knock on the door and tell the guy, I can't believe my dog did this. I guess I'm going to pay up. Do you have a payment plan? <laughs> right? And so he did the only thing he could do. He lied. No, but he did. He shouldn't have, but he did. And so he grabbed that rabbit, and he took it inside, and he washed it because it had blood and dirt all over it, and he cleaned it up, and he blow-dried it, and he got it as pretty as he could. And when the neighbor was out, he ran over there, opened up the cage, set the rabbit inside, shut the door, and went back like no one's business. Owner comes back home. There's rustling in the backyard. Fred is thinking, I have done well on this. And all of a sudden, there's an angry knock at the door. And here comes his neighbor, and he goes, Fred, we have a real sicko in the neighborhood. And he goes, oh, what's going on? You know, and he goes, my rabbit. I just opened my cage. My $30,000 Rex rabbit is sitting in my cage, dead. And Fred thinks quickly, and he goes, well, you know, you have told me these things are, they come and go. I mean, they're, that's why they're so expensive. You know, you win some, you lose some. And uh, I'm sorry it's dead. He goes, no, no, you don't understand. It was already dead. I buried it two days ago in the yard. <laughs> and some sicko dug it up, cleaned it up, and put it back in the cage. <laughs> Much to Fred's surprise, his dog was not the hunter-gatherer, he thought. That dog could apparently dig well in the yard. And while it's funny for us to tell stories like this, we know that lies destroy trust and confidence. We've all done it. Under pressure, when it's in your best interest to say something else, we do. Not always, but sometimes we do. It's always wrong. But you have two choices when you go through that idea of lying. You can either correct it where you're at, and do better next time, or pretend that it's OK, and start developing a habit of being a liar. And I'll tell you right now, the former's a lot better. We make mistakes. We fall short. We've got to correct those things. And Agur was on to something, because lies prevent us from having the kind of relationship we want with God. Considering the following and the severity, a false witness will not go unpunished. And he who pours out lies will not go free. Proverbs 19, what a man desires is unfailing love. Better to be poor than a liar. John 8, this is really describing the devil as the father of lies. And the importance here is that this is the challenge with lies. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You couldn't put a sentence together using lies more than that. The whole idea is that lies do not come from God. Lies come from the devil. And we're always tempted in this fashion. But the worst lie you can tell is a lie to yourself. Because that lie will prevent you from having that relationship with God. So this honoring relationship, Agar asks, don't give me poverty. We understand that, right? Nobody wants to be in, in poverty. There are many of us here among us today that are facing struggles and difficulty financially. It's a challenge. He doesn't want to be one that would steal or would do anything that would be unethical that would prevent his relationship with God. 
right? So we can kind of understand that to some degree. But he goes on, right? And there's nothing dishonoring to God about not having money, nor is there anything dishonoring to God if you have money. It's where the money is in your life, whether it's ahead of God or not, that's the issue, right? So if you look at this, this idea of don't make me rich, otherwise I will have too much and disown you. How many of you have prayed that prayer? God, don't give me too much money. He does because he understands the reason behind it. Abraham, Solomon, David, Job, a lot of rich people in the Bible. But they honored God with their wealth. Agur cannot imagine being in a position where he dishonored God. This is very lengthy, uh, 8 through 18. I've got it split up here. I read this every Thanksgiving in my household. If you want a family tradition, write this down in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and read it at Thanksgiving. Or read it anytime you want. But the importance behind this is I can find myself in these verses. I think I understood what Agar was getting at. When you reach a certain point in life, and it's more we start this idea of self-reliance. And so it's lengthy, but read along with me. Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and revering him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams and pools of water, with springs flowing in the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce, and you will lack nothing, a land where, you're, where rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten, listen to this, when you have eaten and are satisfied, Praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord, your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast, wilder, or vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and, and waterless land. Think about this. How much of this, while, while you might be treating this as, well, you know, I wasn't in Egypt. He didn't lead me out of Egypt. Can you find yourself in this? God is our deliverer. And maybe we didn't have the geographical Egypt from which to be delivered. But he delivered us from sin. And he did it through his son. Giving us this opportunity for eternal life. And how easy is it when we look around at the things that we have in our own lives that it's easy to forget God? Isn't it true that when something threatens us, our mind goes directly to God? Right? When your health is good, you don't think about God. When your health is not, guess what? When things are going financially well, it's easy to forget God until they're not. Do we need those things in our lives to understand God? We shouldn't. But Agur knew this. He didn't want poverty. He didn't want riches. He didn't want lies. He wanted a relationship. That's what he wanted uh, with God. This idea 
what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing uh, Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Here is our end state. Everything else that gets in the way of God needs to go. Everything else is considered rubbish, trash, a distraction, no matter how shiny they are here on earth. Our ultimate goal is to be with Christ forever. So one thing you should understand in the personal application, God loves you. That's what God, you know what God desires from you is a real relationship. I don't care what you've been taught. I don't care all the things and hardships. If you've been to bad churches that have taught you destructive things, what I know from reading in the Bible is that God wants relationship with you. And he wants you where you are today. So if you find yourself broken, in sin, struggling, and just a train wreck, God wants you just like that today. If your idea is that, well, you know what, I'm going to go away and kind of fix myself and then come back, you got it all wrong. You can't fix yourself without Christ. It doesn't matter what your past has been. God could care less about your past. He's focused only on your future. So your beginning starts today, whether you're a, a, a strong Christian or someone who is not a Christian at all. Today's your day, as long as you've got life and breath in your body. So if we can do anything to help you on that journey, let's follow what Agor really threw out, and let's have that relationship with God as the number one thing in our life. And don't let Satan use your past to distract you from what God has waiting for you right now. If we can help you, let us know.